Talk, Identity, and Access, Management. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff, and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Yourself? Good, man. I've uh, been glued to the TV. Really? Why? <laughs> you know, I start watching the news, and then I say, you know, it's time to put on the History Channel and watch the American Pickers. I don't know what it is about that show, but I just love it. You know, for those who haven't watched American Pickers, um, the guys who are on that show, guys and gals, they go into these barns and root through really old junk and they pull out like a rusty bicycle that's a hundred years old and pay like a thousand dollars for it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I wish I had some rusty bicycles. I could sell these guys. Yeah. I've been doing a little bit of uh uh, TV um, palate cleansing with uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, I needed some humor and some comedy in my life uh, based on where things have been for the last week or so. Uh, obviously, we're probably talking here about the American elections, but this is not a political show, so we're not going to get into that too much. But it de- certainly has dominated uh, the um, you know the conversation, at least in the U.S. for the last several days. So, yeah, but not here on not here on identity at the center. We we focus on identity and access management, and today we've got a fantastic guest. Yeah, and to help a conversation that we're going to have today around identity and access management, and we're going to talk about uh, APIs and application programming interfaces, right, and how um, those play a role in identity and access management. To help that conversation, we've got. Bill Nelson, who is the co-founder of Identity Fusion, which is an implement implementation firm that focuses on identity solutions. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, Jeff. Hey, uh, Jim. How you guys doing? Great. Thanks for joining us. Uh, no problem. I've enjoyed it. Before we get started, we've got a traditional kind of first question, and that is, how did you get into identity and access management? Is it something that chose you, or did you choose it? Hmm. That's kind of funny. That's this interesting question. Um, I guess you could say that my experience with IAM began, I don't know, back in the 90s when I first started working with uh, Netscape products, ironically enough. Uh, Most people remember Netscape because of the browser, but many don't realize that Netscape made some pretty cool server products as well. And many of them, which kind of are still around today in one form or another. Uh, At the time I was working on an intranet for a company and we were looking for a way to authenticate users into that intranet. And Netscape had this thing called a directory server. And it integrated nicely with our web server, so we started playing with that. Uh, it kind of did the trick, but to be honest with you, I, didn't, I wasn't a big fan of LDAP at the time. In fact, I can still remember my first directory server class where I argued with the instructor about the merits of databases versus directory servers. Every use case he'd tell me would be to, you know, this is why we're doing it in the directory. And I'd say, but I can do that with the database. And he'd say, well, how about this? And I'd say, well, I can do that with the database too. He kind of gave up on me, <laughs> but after a while of actually implementing this, I, I kind of came to the light and found out that, yeah, directories were, were pretty cool. And Doug, if you're listening out there, I am so sorry I put you through all that grief, man. <laughs> so that kind of moved into from directory services, you know, in the early days, our whole goal was to kind of migrate the data into a common data store. So we focused on things like consolidating identity data for our applications. But what we found was that was a costly initiative that really didn't help. I mean, it didn't provide the return on investment we were looking for. And so it kind of migrated into a different approach where we tried to synchronize the data between the databases. 
And so like most of the people that were out there, we started building our own synchronization tools via scripts and Perl and Java. And then the vendors came along with products they could sell you. And so we started working with products like uh, the Waveset Lighthouse, which became uh, Sun's identity manager product. And so we went ahead and I worked with that and I've been working with identity management products ever since. So kind of my short story there. Hey, Bill, I mean, Netscape directory server, Let's put a date on this. Are we talking 98, 99? Date yourself, please. Uh, date myself. God, that's uh, <laughs> in high school. That's all I did. No, I'm kidding. Um, so the Netscape directory server was probably the mid to late 90s. So I actually have a blog entry out there about the complete history of directory services. Um, I can kind of provide you a link on that one. But it, it does go back to Netscape's first fruition from, uh, I guess, the University of Michigan when Tim Howes and Mark Smith came out with uh, their standalone LDAP server based on, uh, based on the one from University of Michigan. So, um, Bill, I have, to, I have to tell everybody that uh, I've taken several of the courses where you've been the trainer, and what always knocked me out was how good you are as kind of a Unix administrator. Like, you know that operating system. And I've got to say, one of the funniest memories I always have of you is whenever you would do the password change command, how do you pronounce that? Uh, the password change command? Um, password? Isn't it P-A-S-S-W-D? Uh, no, it's password. Oh, okay. Well, then never mind. Not such a good story, but I remember you saying password. Password. Password? No, I'm not going to password. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, well, kind of my thought is that, I, you know, nowadays to be a developer, I don't even think you need those those skills like you did uh, in the early days of kind of what you're referencing back your your history in the in the space. Yeah, it, it's funny because I mean, um, I sound like a, an old timer here, but back in the old days, the way we do it, um, you used to have to be a jack of all trades. And you've actually nowadays, we kind of move into more specialization in certain areas. And, and I find that, that when you focus in, in a specialization, unfortunately, you don't see the bigger picture and you don't have the ability to, to kind of build some of the solutions you need, quite frankly. And so um, I, I do believe even today, you can get away with probably installing products and, and making them work out of the box, you know, different vendor products you might want to go work with, but you really need to know how to configure these guys and, and to make them work the way you want them to, you have to actually have a way to customize them. And that does require some sort of programming skills. Um, it does require scripting at the very minimal, but um, programming skills would also be very helpful as well. Great. Well, I do have I do have Google handy, and I had to look up password, P A S S W D. It's the command on Unix uh, for changing the current user's password. I know I didn't dream this up, Bill, because <laughs> you must have said it a hundred <laughs> times during my. Uh, my training classes with you. And I just thought, wow, this is the most hilarious thing I've ever heard. Well, I'm not going to admit to it. I mean, come <laughs> on. I mean, this has been recorded, so I'm not about to admit to it whatsoever. Yeah. We don't want this to be exhibit A, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What we're going to talk about today is IAM's role in API first implementations. And what we kind of thought, you know, as a level set for, you know, we've got folks who listen to the the podcast from all different technology backgrounds and levels of experience, <clears throat> levels of experience. So I was wondering if you could maybe start with uh, what is an API 
What is an API first implementation? What do you mean by that? Well, so APIs, uh, which API, I think um, we already mentioned, Jeff had said that it's an application programming interface. APIs have been around for you know, a couple of decades. So there, there really isn't a, a new concept in general. What an API first implementation does first and foremost is it shifts the priority from the application to the development of the API itself. So your development actually begins with the API even before your application development even begins. And APIs themselves, so to put things back into perspective, APIs themselves were really created to expose functionality to existing software applications. And so what you did is they were built and bolted onto the software applications that were already developed to expose something, to bring data into it, or to send data out from those software applications. But in an API-first implementation, the software applications are developed after the APIs are already in place. And so you have a little bit more structured uh, form as far as the way they work with the APIs. This, of course, means that you need to have a, a pretty good understanding of the functionality that you, your clients have you know, in order to build that API. And you kind of have to have some master's degree in crystal ball reading to be able to, to do that. Um, so you also need to have a good idea of how those clients are going to interact with the server, what kind of data they're going to be working with. And so you kind of have to have a, you know, a little bit more information about those. That means you have to do the upfront design the best you possibly can. But ultimately, an API-first implementation is a 180-degree departure from your typical application development because you do the APIs first, not the applications first. Yeah, typically, when I, I think when, when most people think about APIs, they're thinking of kind of back-end programming hooks, right, into different applications, data feeds, you know, those sorts of things, you know, making calls back and forth. Um, what, you know, and, and maybe this is a little bit hard question to ask, but what are you seeing now from a market standpoint? I think a lot of organizations have kind of, at least in the IAM space, have started off with building the interface first, right? And then figuring out how they're gonna get the data from, from one spot to another. Um, are you starting to see any shift around, you know, starting with APIs first and then building the application on top of it, like you mentioned, being more customizable from a, you know, user interface perspective, those sort of things, or do you still see kind of a, a mix of, you know, maybe package solutions and, you know, maybe more customization when it comes to the API first applications? Okay. That's, that's a good question. Um, I think what, what's happening is you have this, this um, um, confusion or you have this, um, this combative nature here between agile and uh, software development itself and, and which is the best approach and so forth from a development standpoint. A lot of people will believe that in an agile approach, I can pretty much, you know, have multiple paths and, and just go build a little bit at a time and hook it a little bit at a time into something else and so forth. And so a lot of companies will try to take an agile approach to the development of the software, which absolutely is rock solid. That's good. But what they don't do is they don't try to architect it and, and at least have all their functionality and the requirements built before they even start this down. I, I'm a firm believer there is no such thing as, as a purely agile approach and there is no such thing as a purely waterfall approach. It's a hybrid between the two and, and you have to have some sort of, of you know, upfront planning before you even start the development uh, on these projects. And unfortunately, when you talk to business, a lot of times they think uh, agile is all about, um, you know, I'm gonna change my mind every two weeks. 
You know, that's not the case. You, you're implementing smaller chunks of work over some period of time. And, and, and APIs themselves, you know, and going back to your question, APIs themselves can follow that development methodology. But if you're going and trying to go have a path of building your APIs at the same time as you're trying to go build your web applications, then somebody's going to have to do rework, whether it's in the web UI or in the application. And so you have to pick a horse and ride. You have to build one and, and do the other. And it just makes the most sense to me to start off with the API and have that drive your web UI or your mobile application that you're building once you know what APIs are available to you. But you do have to have the idea of what those um, requirements are before you can even build the APIs. Yeah, there's a little bit of a design phase, right, that takes kind of place before, you know, what are you trying to do and what's the data you're going to need and where are you going to get it from? And and then what do you do with all that, Absolutely. right? So. Where does absolutely yeah. where does identity and access management fit into that type of API first implementation? What's the role that it plays? So APIs themselves they provide your programmatic interfaces into these you know into uh, you know the clients interact with into something on the backend side, and for you to be able to interact with these programmatic interfaces, and your client can be a, an application. Your client could be a user. I mean, your client could be anything that is making a, a you know, for lack of a better word, a REST call to some endpoint, or you know, we're going to be talking about APIs from, a, I guess, a REST perspective in this case. To do that, you need to secure those endpoints. You need to know who's coming in. You need to know what they're allowed to go do on that endpoint. And so to do this, you have to have these clients, I'll call them, have to authenticate into that endpoint. And that requires some sort of access management capabilities that are provided as part of your API solution. It could be something as easy as a client ID and a secret for the authentication, but now that's only one identity that is, is coming into that uh, API. So how do you make the experience different across any user who's coming to the API and only allow them to go do certain things that they're allowed to go do? And that's really, again, where access management and the APIs um, come into play. You also need to have interfaces to allow clients to manage data in there. And, and a lot of the data we're managing as part of this is identity-based data. And so you may have APIs that expose things like customer identities. And some of those customer identities may be synchronized from other places that uh, are exposed through other APIs. And so to have that, you need to have some sort of, of user provisioning or synchronization capabilities. And of course, you also need to have a central identity database where the identities are stored and secured. And given the nature of API transactions, these databases need to be highly performant and extensible and scalable. And so the natural choice for something like that is a directory service, which is kind of like your third leg of the IAM stool. You know, Bill, you brought up a, a really interesting point there of the, the holy war between agile and waterfall. And I think this gets into uh, kind of what level of planning you're doing when you're implementing an IAM system, especially a, a big uh, external facing system, you've got so many different factors. Um, I'm kind of thinking all the things you're talking about earlier where, you know, you need to get into, you, well, you start with the set of requirements, you build out uh, a system design, architecture, things like that. I also really like to take the user experience um, into account early uh, and build wireframes of what those you know, key workflows are going to look like because it really gives, especially non-technical users, um, the ability to kind of formulate in their mind how it's going to work. Um, I'm wondering which of those components you use a lot of uh, and where you think you get value, whether it's 
you know, kind of that that traditional model of the of the the waterfall, starting with requirements and building from there. Uh, do you use wireframes? What what kind of do you find is a successful way to plan an implementation and make sure that everybody's kind of marching to the same drummer? That's a good question also. Um, one of the biggest challenges with, um, I guess, software development in general is how do you take what, I guess, the, the people who are imagining the application, how do they take what they're looking for and convey that over to the developers and how do the developers turn around and, and submit back what they're planning on building so that we can make sure we're on the same page. Um, I used to work for AT&T. I think I started my career off in AT&T. And one of the things we learned in the telecommunications industry is the concept of the ACK and the NAC. Basically, how do you ensure that the message was delivered properly um, to the, you know, to the endpoint? And, and you do that by sending a corresponding message back and they compare the, the two to make sure the signals are the same. So it's kind of the same thing here to some degree. You have to have tools or you have to have some sort of designs or you have to have something that can, can ensure that we're both on the same page. Wireframes are great, but you can't get down into the details of the wireframes until you actually know what kind of workflows you're trying to implement. Um, so I think wireframes are absolutely uh, great, but they need to be implemented probably down a little further into the design phase. Um, we use Visio diagrams, or um, we might use WebSequenceDiagrams.com to help build web sequence diagrams, uh, just to show the flow uh, in between. You know, the I guess the you know, during different um, use cases we're trying to implement. Uh, we also try to design everything we possibly can, and, and I'm a big um, advocate of of pictures. I think in terms of pictures. Um, words are great, but I would rather see something. And so design documentation from an architecture or workflow diagrams, uh, data flow diagrams, data synchronization, mappings, things like that are essential. But those are great in the technical aspect. In essence, when it comes down to working with the, the application owner, or the people that are like contracting you to go do this work internally or externally, uh, you really need to have something that, that kind of builds upon that. And that's where I think your sequence diagrams, your, your wireframes a little further down the line, and possibly even uh, just starting off with a business requirements document would be the, a good start as well. Great. Sorry, I got us sidetracked off of the API first implementation, but, it, you know, it just, you know, you have such a wealth of experience. I also wanted to pick on that wealth of experience in terms of uh, without getting yourself in trouble by naming any clients that you've worked with, but what are some, you know, use cases that you've um, encountered with API first implementations that might be interesting to the listeners? So I think the first uh, API first project that we worked on that really um, took identity and access into the forefront was uh, a situation where we had tractors, you know, your, your tractors out in the field, uh, farmers kind of tractors. Tractors were in the field, and what they needed to do was connect to a cloud service where they could post their telemetry data, where they've been, what they've been doing, and so forth. And so these, uh, these tractors became smart tractors, if you will. And then farmers would take the data, that telemetry data, and then they would use this data to get a better understanding on how to work their fields in a, a better and more efficient manner. So each tractor uh, would have a unique identity. And that tractor would need to, uh, that 
identity would be, need to be managed, but the tractor would have to log in. And for that, we had to use digital certificates uh, on the tractors themselves. And those digital certificates had to be managed and, and in some cases swapped out. Um, but in essence, it all had to be done remotely. And, and that was kind of our first uh, foray into it. More recently, uh, we began working with a large um, automotive service provider and they were developing an application where um, users could do remote services against their vehicles. They could do a remote start or a remote door unlock or even roll down the windows all from a mobile application. And in this case, this took the tractor example to a whole nother level of complexity. And we had two main challenges we had to work on this. And, and the first one was performance. And the second one was, was basically implementing uh, the entitlements around this entire solution. From a performance standpoint, uh, these requests that the vehicles uh, would, would need to go perform, they travel from the user's mobile application through the cellular network into the provider's network. And then from the provider's network, they would leap over to a satellite and from the satellite would have to get down to the car. And so many of the requirements that we had on that project are really focused on SLAs that have a full response time of less than one second. And that means we had to uniquely identify the user, determine if they're allowed to perform the operation, um, and then send it, uh, the message to the vehicle all in less than one second. So that's the, the, the performance, uh, I guess, on this side. The other side of this was the vehicle might have many family members that share the vehicle. And those vehicle owners may want to limit services between the different family members. And that kind of required us to have some robust authorization mechanism inside there. And everything we evaluated on the market from, from different vendors did not meet our needs. And so we had to create a custom entitlements engine that was not only secure, but it was also performant and scaled to tens of millions of users. And so both these implementations are kind of good examples of how IAM fit within an API first implementation and, and kind of where we've been fortunate to, to work in. I like how you picked a, a first world problem that I consistently encounter, and that is the remote start capability of, of both of my vehicles have <laughs> apps, right? And you know, it's always frustrating. It's like, okay, you know, I hit the unlock command or I hit the remote start command and now I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, right? And you know, all the things behind the scenes that have to happen, the authentication, the authorization, the transmitting of all the information back and forth across the network, you know, to a device that might be in a garage, right? Or something like that, where signal strength might be limiting bandwidth, right? Those sorts of things. So, uh, so I'm glad you touched on my first world problem that I, that I, that I tend to encounter. It, it's funny you mentioned that because we actually had um, our, our, our stretch goal, the one that, uh, that, that we were trying to meet, um, that kind of just got embedded into my brain on this project was you wanted to be able to use the mobile app to go ahead and, and roll the window down. And as the window was rolling down, you also wanted to go ahead and roll it back up again. And so catch it before it got all the way down and then turn around and roll it back up. That was our stretch goal. That's what we were trying to achieve in this. And you know that has not been implemented yet because we haven't gone to that particular, we're not doing the remote services on that particular uh, uh, device yet, but we're pretty darn close on everything else. So it's been, it's been a very challenging, but yet a, a great and rewarding uh, experience. Yeah, I would imagine as technologies improve and bandwidth improve through things like 5G and ultra wideband, and you know you can be standing next to your car, right, to do all this, but it's still got to go up into space typically, <laughs> right, and then come back down to mm -hmm. be able to do all that stuff. And there's a lot of latency that gets involved with that. Um, but I digress. Um, 
you know, when I when I think about APIs and and approaching it from that perspective, is there an order of operations or maybe a certain level of maturity that a business needs to take into account when it comes to you know starting with APIs? Do they have to have some level of maturity around that, or you know what's the right way to go if if you're a business or you know whatever it may be, and you're trying to build some sort of service that's going to require IAM APIs of some sort? I think there is, um, and it's really just trying to embrace and understand API-first um, concepts. Um, going back to the tractor example, we didn't know what, what API-first meant. Well, we knew how to implement um, your, your IAM solutions. And you know, the, or fortunately, the customer was um, gracious enough to teach us as we were doing it. And so this was probably about maybe 10 years ago, I think is when we implemented this thing. So this was actually in the very forefront of a lot of these, uh, these technologies. But API first itself, um, we had to learn. And even so, that we implemented that product. I don't think we, we understood quite the complexities of, of some of the larger scale uh, deployments when it's API first also. And so I think that the first thing is to, number one, understand the importance of this. The second thing is um, trying to get to a point where your developers are not um, how shall I say it, uh, wagging the tail. Your developers definitely want to go do everything they possibly can, but when you integrate with so many different client applications that are out there or the, the client applications integrate with you, you kind of have to set up your, your rules for that API. And unless there's a good business reason uh, to change it, don't. And so what we found is that sometimes application owners were trying to tell us how to go build the APIs. And that wasn't the right approach at all. You know, that was an application first approach, not an API first approach. And so I think the biggest thing for companies that are looking to go ahead and start off with an API first implementation, uh, no matter whether it involves uh, your IAM or not, is really to just understand um, and also to, to basically don't put the cart before the horse. Hey Bill, there are a lot of IAM technologies out there. And I think, you know, it's also a generational thing where, you know, API first wasn't always the mantra. Some of the legacy technologies have kind of bolted on APIs to their products. Others have started with more of an API first approach. Um, but regardless of that, I mean, I, I think they're, you know, as the industry has matured, there were certain organizations that were trying to solve these problems before there were mature options from a commercial perspective and they've gone and built their own systems. And I think there are companies now that are trying to make the decision on whether they should build or buy. And obviously the buy option has come a long way. There's a lot more out there, but is there ever in your experience still a case where, you know, building an IEM um, footprint where it actually makes sense to do that? So I'm going to uh, give you my standard consulting answer, and that is, it depends, right? And it depends on a lot of things. I mean, for the most part, businesses that, that want to build custom solutions typically gravitate towards technologies that they know or they have experience with. Um, but businesses that are building uh, API-first applications or building applications in general while they might know their product or they might know their service that they're offering their customers, 
one of the biggest issues they have is they don't necessarily understand identity and access management, okay? And so what happens is they'll build something and maybe they'll build it for one application and maybe they'll build something a little bit different for a different application and then so forth. And this kind of results in your, your islands of identity information, if you will. And in worst cases, uh, kind of ends up in, in many insecure type solutions as well. So while API first implementations themselves, they require things like authentication and authorization and provisioning services, you know, it, it really depends, going back to my answer, uh, it, on what the use cases are. You don't necessarily need to have um, a vendor-based product if your solution only requires a minimal number of, of um, use cases. Like I said earlier, a, a client ID and a client secret you know, may be all you need to authenticate an application into a, a uh, API. And it, every, that's all you need. You don't need a, a full-blown IAM solution. But there's other cases out there for you know, what we're seeing with like the, the tractor example or the, the vehicle service example, a lot more robust based um, implementations that are going on where you absolutely need to have more, um, um, I guess what I would consider uh, COTS based solutions wherever possible. Because if you're gonna try and go build the stuff that we had to go build from scratch, I think that would be, it would take a, a five-year project instead of maybe a, a one or two-year project easily. You just need to figure out what the right solution is that actually meets the needs, you know, whether it's a vendor product or, or not. And that really goes down to the scope of what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think there's, there's somewhat competing forces too in that you know, companies have limited resources. They need to focus on what creates business differentiation, business value. And at the same time, if a company's growth path is going to put them into the space of millions or hundreds of millions of users, it may become very expensive to, um, you know, subscribe to a, or or license a, a software solution. Especially to your point, if you're getting um, kind of a small, finite set of services that you require. So I think that's that, that's also got to be part of the decision. It really comes down to kind of the return on investment. But I also think you brought up a great point, which is that, you know, this space is not just uh, a couple of features. There's, there's so much going on in the security world that does, if you're not a security company, do you want to have to invest the people resources in keeping your system secure? Or you want to leverage a partner solution that really, you know, takes care of that, especially if it's a cloud-based solution where they're, you know, providing a, an additional layer of security on top of their solution. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you stole my thunder, Jim, because that's what I was going to think too, was, yeah, I think it's a business decision of where you want to focus your resources. Do you want to be a security company or not? Is that is that in the wheelhouse of where you want to be responsible for? So, but I thought you hit it pretty well. Thanks. Thanks for stealing that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Bill, you were talking about the tractors and, you know, having kind of an IoT type approach, Internet of Things identity approach with those. And I, I think of the movie Interstellar and all the robot tractors there <laughs> that are going to kind of, you know, farming their earth, uh, at least in the beginning of the, of the movie. Where do you see things going from where we're at right now? What's on the horizon? What does the future look like, you know, let's say five years out from now from an, from an API and from an IEM perspective and how those are Seen, at least they seem to be kind of becoming more intermingled as we go along. You know, it, it's funny because um, when I look at um, at 
technologies, or I look at uh, the identity and access management space, I used to say that um, uh, back in the old days, once again, web servers in the very beginning were considered very complex or, or web servers themselves were these really cool things that nobody knew how to go set up unless you were somebody who was schooled on it and so forth. And then I, web servers became as common you know, as anything else. I mean, I used to say you could get them in the pack of a, a cereal box uh, at some point in time. And I do see that technologies in the identity access management space, uh, some vendor products that are out there, we've come up with some very common, um, whether it's the protocols, whether it's the flows, whether it's the implementation methodologies, we're seeing a lot of things that are common. And so I, don't, I think that we're going to continue moving to more of a commoditized based environment as it pertains to um, identity and access management. Where I see the shift actually happening though, is in terms of how those products are actually implemented. Um, we've seen in the last uh, few years, more of a focus on things like privacy and ownership and selective sharing of identity data. You know, privacy laws that were more common to, you know, our Northern partners up in Canada or um, European countries are, are now starting to make their way into the US where we're seeing similar laws being introduced across different states. And so I continue seeing this happening as vendors begin to uh, offer services based on things like self-sovereign identities or blockchain. Um, existing vendors will add those things to their products as new vendors will emerge to go ahead and compete and, and provide new stuff out there. So I do believe that in the next five years, we're gonna see a major shift from uh, what we consider corporate owned identities, those that uh, are owned by the company or where your identity exists to more user centric or user owned identities. The other thing that I see uh, coming down the line, which you know, we've been seeing for quite some time, is, is basically the trying to kill that password. I mean, in 2011, the US government introduced that uh, initiative called National Strategy for Trusted Identities in the Cyberspace, a big long you know, phrase for NSTIC, right? And that really what it was, was a joint initiative between the government and the private sector to kill the password, in essence, but it was a direct response to the billions of dollars that were being lost to identity theft. And so we've seen a lot of uh, initiatives since 2011, um, some good, some not so good, but I believe that we're really on the precipice now being able to kill that password. And maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, but I'd like to see the death of passwords within the next five years. And, and I do think that's achievable. We're with you on that. We talk about that on, it feels like every episode. Um, but I had to say, I have to lighten this a little bit and say, back in my day, we connected to a relational database and we liked it. <laughs> that's the, uh, for those who don't know, that's the grumpy old man from Saturday Night Live. And I think you can probably find most of those episodes on YouTube, but good stuff. Um, but, you know, for Bill, for, Bill, for for somebody who's starting out on this path, and maybe they do have a lot of really old applications or they haven't gone down this API first approach. Um, what advice would you have for them getting started? I mean, at, at the most fundamental level, I'm assuming they've got to kind of go out there and research it and learn about it. Or is there is there some other approach that you would recommend? So yeah, I think there's two different schools here. There's the API first, uh, which I think I've already spoken about how you kind of get started there. But the other one really is getting started in identity and access management itself. 
because you have to have a firm foundation there to be able to provide those features to an API-first implementation. Now, I've been in the business for, I'm going to say, over 25 years, and it's probably a little bit higher than that, but I stopped counting at 25 because I don't want to sound like really old. And so I can honestly say that in the time that I've been working in technology, the IAM portion of this has been the most rewarding part of my career. I mean, I get to work with some of the largest companies making great products that are basically changing our lives. And that's largely due to the fact that I'm working in the identity and access management field. So when I first started going down this path, I really didn't know where to start. There wasn't anything out there. I mean, Netscape Directory, I took a class and, and I think I upset my instructor because I'm with you. We put our identities in a database and we loved it, dang it. And so, you know, other than the vendor training, there wasn't a lot of information out there to help us define our path in the earlier days. Today, the amount of training, the white papers, I mean, we have entire seminars out there, you know, week-long seminars in some cases or, or, or conferences, uh, YouTube videos that are really focused on nothing but I am. So the amount of data out there is simply staggering. So whether it be vendor specific or just general in nature. So we've, you know, even ourselves, I mean, we found that we've created our own training program to help those that want to become what we call IAM practitioners to help develop those guys and also certify them so they can become, you know, useful and understand how to, to implement these products. The other thing is there's a gap out there right now in the number of workers in the cybersecurity field. I mean, this year alone, there's over 300,000 jobs that are unfilled, and that has nothing to do with COVID. It was even before COVID was even announced that these jobs were unfilled, and a large majority of those are identity-related. You know, that gap is only going to grow over the foreseeable future, and we're looking for people to fill it. So the advice that I would give to anybody that is just looking to start this is just get started. Um, take a look, you know, do searches out there on the web and, and see, you know, what your interest levels are. If you don't know what the, the categories are you're even looking for, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll be more than happy to, to point you in, in whatever direction based on whatever you're looking to go do or, or reach out to yourself, Jim. I mean, there's, there's plenty of, of uh, information out there and plenty of people that are looking to help. There's organizations to help. There's, there's all sorts of information out there for, for anybody who wants to get started. So my advice is, just get started. Yeah, that that is a great point, and I always like to say that you know building a career is not a nine to five job. You've really got to invest yourself in the process. And by the way, it's not only the technical skills that build a career; it's it's all the other stuff. I mean, Bill, one of the things I've always appreciated about you is that you're an entrepreneur. You've built your own business. At the same time, you're keeping up your technology skills, and you're out there doing some public speaking. Um, for the aspiring entrepreneur, for the aspiring IAM, or just a person looking to build their career, what are some of the things that you would recommend that, that they go and do, um, ways that you in particular stay sharp or kind of some of the, the lessons learned that you've come across over your career? Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a good question also. Um, when it, so IAM there's so many opportunities to work in so many different areas in this space, you know, in identity and access management. If you choose to work um, and, and focus mainly on technology, and, and that's really where you want to stay and keep your focus on technology, then um, really trying to understand and becoming the best you can possibly be in that 
one particular technology, whether it's access management, whether it's directory services, whether it's, you know, whatever it might be. If you choose to, to look at um, um, what I would consider on the user provisioning side, so the identity management side, that takes a little bit different skill sets. In there, you, you need to know the technologies, but you also need to know methodologies more so than, than others. And you need to understand business, I would say, and you're talking to different business people uh, you, you have more tentacles across the organization of people you work with. And that's where I like to focus my time. Uh, I get paid to be Sherlock Holmes when it comes to building some of these, you know, these things. And, and I really enjoy that. So the advice that, uh, that I, I would suggest to anybody that does not have experience in here in, in the IAM space that wants to get it is, again, go start you know, researching, but then go find a job with a company that is doing this. Learn from the ones that are doing this. I'm a firm believer in the apprenticeship model. You don't necessarily want to launch a business until you have the experience with that business. And so learn from those that are doing it and then take what you, know, you can from them, whether it's um, learning the technologies, learning the methodologies, learning the concepts or whatever it might be, uh, and then take that and figure out how you would do it better. And then go offer a new product or a new service or, or something that you know is different than what maybe your other uh, your last company was doing. So I would recommend just if anything, um, work with somebody or work for somebody. Uh, why not get paid uh, doing something versus just trying to go train and learn something? Uh, you need to have a little bit of gray hair in this space, quite frankly, to you know to show your your worth and your merit on this. And so the more you can do along those lines and get the experience, the, the better, I believe. I think that's great advice. And it really kind of echoes actually how I came up, you know, way, way, way back in the day, you know, building Lotus Notes IDs and, you know, uh, mainframe IDs on a rack F, those sorts of things, you know, learning by doing is, is for me personally, how I learn the best and you'll learn what works. And then just as importantly, you learn what doesn't work and being able to take that experience and apply it, you know, as you decide to move around the IM space, there's plenty of room for technical and non-technical folks in the IAM world. So um, experience is a great teacher. Um, Bill, you've been uh, uh, so gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. And before we wrap things up uh, for, for this week, are there any other pearls of wisdom or not wisdom that you would like to share with uh, either us or the audience? Pearls of wisdom. Um, if you know me, uh, I've got lots of pearls. I don't know if they're necessarily wisdom, I think most of them are dad jokes. Uh, so um, I guess in, the only pearl of wisdom or the only thing I can kind of uh, close with in this case here is, is something you said, Jim. And that is when it comes to technology, I mean, we get paid to play. I mean, let's be honest. We're on computers. We get to go play with something. We get to go figure something out. And, it, and it's, it's just a great job in, in general but it's one that has some seriousness associated with it. And so you need to become, if you're working in the security space, you need to become a practitioner of the thing you're implementing. And IAM is no different. You need to devote to that craft. And some of that will be done out of the normal nine to five job. Some will be devoted uh, you know, during the normal business hours. It really depends on what you want to do with this. And so it depends on, on uh, how deep you want to build your own career versus trying to go build somebody else's is what it comes down to. And so there's a lot of outside reading you're going to want to go do. There's a, a lot of you know, watching and, and it's not just identity focused. The interesting thing I think about identity is 
is the hooks that it has into all aspects of life. And so, I mean, when we talk about identity, the first thing your, your family members always say is, oh, that's identity theft, right? Well, yeah, kind of, but not really. And so it touches on everything that's out there, whether it's a product or service being offered by a vendor, whether it's a website you visit, whether it's you walking into a hospital. I mean, identity is the core of everything. And so the Pearl of Wisdom, I would say, is just, you know, if you are technologically focused or if you want to get into managing projects like this or if you want to just help craft solutions or whatever it might be, I mean, it's all up to you. Just learn the basics. And to do that, you're going to have to spend some outside time just reading books, watching videos and and whatever it might be just to, to understand. Thanks, Bill. Jim, and is there anything that you want to throw out there before we wrap things up? You know, just the, the one thing that I found in my career to be so important is the power of relationships and just spending time to get to know people like, you know, Bill, somebody I know from my past, I've maintained a relationship with them. Bill and I don't talk every day, right? It's been a long time. Uh, but I think it's so important to get out there and meet people and, you know, be able to build on that. So like Bill mentioned, um, connect to him on LinkedIn, maybe shoot him a message if there's something that you either think that he could help you with or, or vice versa. Same with Jeff and I, we're on LinkedIn. That's, I think from a social media perspective, that's the only social media I do. Uh, but building those relationships, expanding your network, uh, I think that's such a critical part of your career. Absolutely. And, and always remember to change your password. <laughs> there you go. I'm not going to pass any wood. That sounds crazy. Um, all right. That was a terrible joke. And call back. So I'm just going to continue pushing on here. Um, Bill, thanks so much for your time. Jim, thanks for your time as well. I will have links to uh, Bill on LinkedIn, as well as Jim and I in the show notes, as well as a link to Identity Fusion, which you can visit on the web at identityfusion.com. And uh, I think with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it for this week. And thank everybody for listening. And we will talk with y'all in the next one. You've been listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. For more episodes, visit identityatthecenter.com.